There are people that I've met on little chance happenings, you know, that that keep threading in through the tapestry of, of, of the years and, and have, you know, the spider web spread, you know. And that I really love. Hello, I'm Poonam and welcome to Crew Chats Podcast, where I speak to the crew that work behind the scenes in the film, TV and theatre industries. For this episode, I spoke to costume designer Kim Barrett. A graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Australia, Kim began her career by designing sets for theatre and went on to design costumes and sets for small theatre shows for the Sydney Theatre Company. It was with Baz Luhrmann's iconic 1996 film Romeo and Juliet that Kim got her first break designing costumes in film, which has been followed by the cult classic films The Matrix Trilogy as well as Aquaman, Cloud Atlas, Charlie's Angels and the horror film Us, to name a few. Kim, as well as having extensive film credits, has designed for theatre, including Cirque du Soleil and the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Just a note on the conversation, we spoke about COVID and the situation as it was at the time of recording a few months ago. Hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, Hi, Kim. Hi, Poonam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get into it. Now, you're a costume designer and what does that involve for you? Well, uh, every di- every job is different and every genre of film is different. But then, of course, I often do um, theatre work and commercials and animation. So in the big broad stroke, I would say most of it is uh, interaction with First of all, the director and the story. Uh, and then after that, I really like to focus on the performers <clears throat> and how they feel their characters can work their way into the fabric of the, of the script and how the director's thinking of allowing the audience into our, you know, into our each different world. I mean, you know, and then, of course, in each different project depending on the requirements of uh you know the lens through which you see it uh there's always a kind of a a different more delicate process that goes into you know really I'm trying to create a picture frame for the audience and each genre has a kind of set of rules which are contained within a picture frame and um and that is constantly changing so as a costume designer your job is always the same but always completely different and I think that's what is so amazing about it because you get some words on a page and then you assemble a bunch of people from all over the world and some of them you know and some of them you don't know and some of them you've known for 20 years and some of them you just met and you still are within this time frame you have to create something unique uh, to that story. So for me, you know, it's kind of an all-encompassing project, every project, and I do tend to really settle into it and fall in love with whatever um, time period or group of characters or, you know, narrative that I'm, I'm involved in. Um, and I think that's why people keep doing it. You know, it's really hard, demandingly, physically, yeah. kind of psychologically quite demanding, especially right now in covid I think, you know, you, your humanity has to kind of come out on top um, and um, it's, it's not paint by numbers, you know, it's very specific uh, attention you have to pay to different people and sometimes in big groups of different, very different people and in different languages and, and you're always trying to uh, cheerleader people with emerging skills 
while relying very heavily on people with very um, solid and experienced uh, set of, of skills. So it's, um, you know, balancing like the modern needs of technology and the different, you know, the very, very different techniques and, and technologies that we use now to, to make a group of costumes is so completely different to 10 years ago. And, you know, I'm always very resistant to the idea that, you know, everyone's just sitting behind a sewing machine. Of course, there is work on sewing machines, but there's also work in yeah. 3D printing and 3D scanning and all kinds of new technological fabrics and products. And, and so I feel like you also have to be on the forefront of this kind of technical wave um, of things that you can use that, that maybe aren't made for our industry, made for other industries that we kind of poach and, and turn to, turn to our, our particular needs. So I guess I'm made a bigger question, a big, bigger answer to your question. No. But I feel like it's definitely um, costume design is not, you know, drawing a picture, making a costume and getting an Oscar. Like I think there's a lot that goes into it that's unseen and unseen for a, you know, a very good reason. You don't want anyone to see behind the scenes because you want the people to believe in, in the characters and the situation that, that you're creating. So you're almost, you know, you're like a magician, right? You're hiding all of the, the very practical, technical things to help create something that seems believable and real in whatever period yeah. or world or, um, set of circumstances that you find yourself in yeah I mean I'm going to unpack that what you've specifically said just a little bit later but actually you addressed something a bit earlier and obviously we are living in a pandemic and COVID and um, the film industry I think across the world in parts of the world is getting back into it and you've just you're on a production at the minute how have you found working in that kind of environment and you're in Australia I should also mention that so the dynamic of each country is obviously naturally different as well how have you found with having certain precautions in place um that design process and that interaction with fabric and people how have you found that it naturally has changed but what has been your kind of take on it has it hampered how you design and how that process is or have you have to sort of work with it I guess yeah, I mean, once when the uh, pandemic started, I was already um, in the first couple of weeks of shooting on a Marvel picture in Sydney. So a lot of the design, or you know, I would say sixty percent of the design process was kind of completed, um, and we were in kind of manufacture and already shooting some parts of it, and then still designing, you know, what had to still be designed. So. And obviously some people who were supposed to fly in couldn't fly in or couldn't fly in till later. Mm. So um, we did kind of have to, um, we did shut down for about two and a half months during which time I um, was mostly working on protocols because at that time there were no recommended protocols from anything or anyone. Um, so in a way, yeah. before um, Marvel and Disney had had time to formulate their protocols, we were already getting up and running, and so we had to institute a lot of our own. Um, and a lot of it was common sense from my perspective, and then a lot of it was also, I think, just getting consensus yeah. from my team about what we were and weren't willing to do or how much exposure we were or weren't willing to put ourselves in. 
And I think standing up for those very, it was like five things, you know, we had, you know, we said we had to find a, a cleaning regime that, yeah. that really covered main cast, extras, specialty costumes, which couldn't be laundered. Because, you know, a lot of pro- protocols that people offered up to us were, oh, you know, just put them in the washing machine in a hot dryer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that with most of my costumes, you know. So um, each costume we had to work out, okay, how do we clean that? How do we maintain that? How do we look after that um, so that everyone's comfortable? Um, later on down the line, uh, Disney came, asked us for our uh, what our protocols had been and they incorporated them into their biggest statement, which was really great. And... Um, and then on this next film that I'm doing, which is um, George Miller film, 3,000 Years of Longing, which is a much smaller project, we also, we also were part of that um, proposal of how we should go forward. And so I think every project, every project's learning from the project before them and, and working out what their individual kind of structure has been. I think... You know, some of the great perks of all of this is that, you know, we get a coffee barista outside oh. <laughs> um, all day. So, you know, you have to go make your own coffee or look after your own food in the kitchen and now, of course, we can't do that. So um, there are definitely um, some great things that have come out of it. Um, and also I think, you know, as I said before, I think the humanity, the human side of it, definitely comes to the fore I think in my experience certainly um, Mm. everybody's really conscious of people's anxieties you know we have cast coming in our case in this movie we had London actors and then we also had Turkish actors from Istanbul and both places are quite high very high COVID so just being able to kind of welcome them with a confident set of protocols and, you know, allow them to, you know, we had like a special green room set up, which we wouldn't have had before so that they didn't have to be only in their trailer on their own, you know, would they could have a safe room that, that was available to them and they could all be together. We get tested three times a week. So I think that helps everybody feel confident that they're being, heard and uh protected and and so i don't i i don't feel uh we i haven't witnessed anyone so far anyway um who has behaved badly i think everyone's very grateful for for the fact that this has happened you know uh so i think it's it's been um it's been actually quite good for us yeah, I think as I agree with you as a whole. Like, now, I can't, there's a few films I cannot not mention when I'm speaking to you. So the first one has to be Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. And anyone who, I, for my age bracket, I think it's design, It's defined kind of that Shakespeare. I think I was introduced to it at school when we were reading the text and we got the opportunity to watch the film at school. And it exposed us to that Shakespeare's language in an entirely different way and I wanted to ask about your process behind that because for anyone that hasn't seen it the language is all very Shakespearean but the aesthetics and the costumes and everything was very um, modern or contemporary and how did you approach that um, design process and what was your kind of were you a bit I don't know how did you feel when you got the job and yeah how did you approach the whole thing? I was really involved very early on in 
just a small handful of us of like putting together the script and the photo boards and the little videos and submitting it to the studio for like to ask for money, you know, to, to start kind of um, producing the film. And of course, people found, you know, it was quite a, um, I don't know, they just thought we were a bit odd, I think, you know, that Australian bunch. But of course, we'd all been on um, Strictly Ballroom. So, um, and Peter Rice was a junior executive on Strictly Ballroom. And now he's the head of Fox, the whole head of Fox TV. So um, I think he was just like, oh, you know, I'm just going to give them a go. I'm going to help them. Uh-huh. And um, and he kind of shepherded us through the process into actually being able to make the movie. So it was a really, it was a really unique experience, I think. I mean, there's very few jobs where as a costume designer you know apart from things like Cirque du Soleil or or you know particular directors will want you to be part of the process right from the very beginning which of course is you know the best way to do it to be embedded in that whole thought process from the very beginning beginning to end I guess yeah um I think I think it's it's kind of a little sad that people think oh costume designers they just come in at the end and make a few clothes and, and hope for the best. So, yeah, I find that quite strange. Um, but, um, you know, but anyway, as a result of that, you know, it really was our, our first or my first real um, project that was, I was, you know, totally 100% part of it and part of the script and part of the ideas and part of the aesthetic and part of the problem solving and, um, also, we were in Mexico City and none of us could speak Spanish. So we were also, right, right, negotiating how do you work in this kind of environment. And, of course, Mexico is like such a fantastically diverse country. And then also Mexico City is this, this incredibly, you know, vibrant, passionate, dramatic kind of city. And, and we had people from all over the world. You know, we had hair, hair and makeup. We're Italian production team were from Spain we were from Australia then there was people from the US you know all kinds of people like in this bigger melting pot of Mexico City so it couldn't have really helped but not be this kind of chaotic vibrant uh, visual feast and I think the visual you know Baz was very adamant that it had to be Shakespearean and um of course, in his mind, you know, all of that Shakespearean talk was kind of like, you know, the slang and the rap and the, you know, that kind of vernacular of the time. And, you know, and I think you can see that in other his subsequent movies that for him it's all about, you know, the music and the beat of the rhythm of the language. And I think, you know, that was one time where he really had full reign to explore that. And our job basically was to provide a visual, you know, encyclopedia for what was going on in the script. So when he, it's no accident that he says, oh, bright, you know, Leonardo says, oh, bright angel, I put her in an angel, angel wings and a costume because everything just had to kind of mirror, you know, the language really. So that anyone who missed the language or anyone who didn't get it, at least they could keep following the story. They weren't, they weren't stopped in their tracks, yeah. you know, because they couldn't understand it and turn it off. 
they could they could just go with it oh angel oh girl with wings oh I'm gonna follow that storyline so I think that was I don't think it was overly obvious necessarily when you saw the film but I but it was a way of us trying to keep everybody engaged knowing that their language could be problematic and then in fact you know people kept saying to us oh the language the language but you know I think people eventually understood that well actually subconsciously you just accepted the language and the visual story enabled you to you know keep enjoying it and moving forward until you heard a part that you really could understand so I think that you know it also gave people like you say um, who were seeing Shakespeare on screen in a modern context just a window into you know accessing and enjoying all those stories because all those Shakespearean stories are just repeated and repeated and repeated again in all modern films basically so they are the human condition and so you are they almost are innately embedded in your in your storytelling psyche right so um yeah so that was definitely you know it for it helped me form my way of approaching stories uh where often there isn't much dialogue or if the dialogue's seemingly not intrinsically connected to the context you know I can just kind of help um, you know if it's all if the story's all about emotion and inner psychological um questions or something that's going on with the with the with the performers and really that story could be set anywhere like Shakespeare's stories are often set in all kinds of for years and even before Romeo and Juliet for years and years was set in different modern contexts. It's not a new idea. It's just that it was one of the first times it happened to be on in a medium that lots and lots and lots of MTV generation kids watched, right? And so, you know, I think it does inform my general uh, way of approaching every project, you know. It's always like, what's the silhouette like from far away? And what's the detail like from close up? And how does that help tell the story without people having to think about, you know, because you want them to enjoy the story and you want them to enjoy the performance. You want them to empathise with the what's going on with that character. And so for me, my job's, unless it's called for in the script, my job's really, I see it as just supporting, supporting the audience so that they feel like they've got a doorway to or a window to look into which isn't hard work, you know. Yeah. Do you do you find this is an odd question, but do you find that's a little bit easier, maybe with a um, a fantastical or maybe a period um, production? Say, I mean, you did Jupiter Ascending, Cloud Atlas, or um, compared to something more um, like a, a contemporary or a horror film like Us, for example, or Charlie's mm. Angels. Do you find that yeah. to, to portray that? Do you think, because with the Romeo and Juliet, I reckon, I mean, I, whenever I think about that film, I think about that scene where the, the party, the Capulet party, mm. and then the first time Romeo and Juliet meet across the fish tank and he's dressed as a knight and she's dressed as an angel, like you say. And every character to me, when I think about it now, maybe at the time I didn't think about it, every character clearly, like the parents are dressed in a specific way to portray something about their character. And in those ways, because it's a fancy dress party, it's quite obvious to see the connection. But in something more contemporary, do you find that that's a bit more of a challenge or is there something, it's more about the subtlety of what you're doing? Yeah, I think it's more about turning the knob on the volume of it. You know, for example, in Us, um, 
that was a little tiny, tiny budget movie um, with a really short prep. Uh, and so, you know, but again, I kind of started from silhouette. So, and also function before form is my other, my other kind of go-to, I suppose. I need to I need, I need to make sure that the actors can do what they need to do in their costume. So I have no interest in constricting an actor unless their character calls for them to be constricted or the actor wants to feel constricted. Some actors will want to wear high heels because it hurts their feet all day or makes them walk funny or it makes them feel a certain way. And some actors, you know, they they just, some actors, they just like do whatever's going to look good, I'll work with it, you know. So I think that in us, I had to think, you know, if there really were these hundreds of thousands of people living under the ground, which were the shadow selves of other people, um, well, how did they access anything? How did they, for us not to notice them, how did they access stuff? How did they, so I had to think, okay, there's hundreds of thousands of old warehouses in old towns all over the country, which I've been to myself, where you can go and buy um, like boxes, which are still full of clothes of 1960s, t-shirts for little kids from 10 to 12 and you can go and buy these unopened boxes of shoes and of socks and of things oh, wow. they're still existing in these like old factories just sitting there um and we often you know we often um do do that for period shows so you know did they access somewhere you know an old an old um workman supply to find all these to find all these um, jumpsuits, which are very utilitarian, right? They can just put them on. They all look the same. They look like a uniform. And by the same token, there were, you know, the sandals were a similar thing. Like, did they just find sandals? But then they happened to look kind of pseudo cult religious <laughs> as well. Uh, we, I think we believe in the story that they made the scissors. How did they get that idea? We don't know. You know, so... I feel like that was a very strong silhouette because you first see them as shadows backlit in the driveway. So you needed to have a kind of a swing bang kind of military stroke prison break, you know, kind of feeling about them, but you didn't really know that. Um, Jordan was very insistent that they were red. So when you're dealing with red, you can't really, it's a kind of weird to do like red pants, red skirt, red jacket, you know, it's like a bit weird. So we ha I had to kind of think, okay, what, what could this be that would, even if we don't really know the backstory, it has to have, it has to feel like in some way so unassuming that it could be possible. So it's just the calibration, I think, of how you see it. And then the other characters were very monochromatic and very um, yeah. California of, of our time. Um, you know, they were a bit J. Crew mixed with JC Penny mixed with Target, you know, like it's all, it's all very California, California T-shirts, hoodies, track pants. It's like very generic. And, um, and the only things that I think, stood any made anything stand out were the things that we chose to screen print on things 
you know, and little messages that we that I put into those clothes. Like oh. um, the daughter's hoodie has rabbit in Vietnamese screen printed on the front. Oh. Right? Little, you know, so there's little things that I just added in, but for the most part, everything had to be within the bounds of kind of boring realism, but then thrust into this situation that made it completely unrealistic. Um, well, to, to us, to us yeah. if it happened to us. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, if it happened to you, you're really um, And you had to believe like one moment you were safe and the next moment you weren't. Light can happen in an earthquake or a pandemic or a, a car yeah. crash, or right? You're, you're going along in this very normal way. And Suddenly. Everything's normal yeah. and something happens and it's not anymore. We're still wearing the same clothes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't consciously and I think all designers have their own way of reaching reaching that, you know, their their way of doing it. But I think in every project, you know, sometimes you have much more input into the script. Um, sometimes I mean luckily for me, I, I've worked on a lot of shows where I can say to the pe- to the director I'm working with, often I work with them a few times in a row and I can say, Oh, you know, if you, you know, if you adjusted that line slightly, we could do this and this and this to make that extra good or, or is that a good idea? You know, you can always yeah. kind of help. You know, of course, some directors like it. Some directors are like, no, the script's the script and whatever, find another way. But I think that's also our job is to present, you know, ideas um, and be collaborative in that way. Because I often find that um, there, there can often be kind of blame, a bit of a blame game sometimes and people will be like, well, I did exactly what they asked me and it didn't work, see? And I'm like, <laughs> well, that, I'm sorry, that's the wrong attitude. Why go through all that process of creating something you know is not going to work just so you can prove that they were wrong? Like, what's the point? I mean, but work out what you think you can how you can navigate around that and sidestep all that waste of time and money and energy and anxiety and lying awake all night by having an idea that can help get to that point without having to go that big long road around, you know, and that, and then that being said, you know, there are really demanding jobs where you are at the end of your tether and you're like, Oh, far out. Like why can't we just make a decision? Um, (laughs) And there's a lot of resistance, 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 and just like, okay, I'll let them just have it their way and see that it won't work. And then you have to pull yourself up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, I don't think that can work because of these reasons. I've got an idea. Shall I try it? And some people say yes. Some people say no, but then I do their way and I do my way and then I present both ways. And then I haven't wasted any time. And they always are relieved because... If their way didn't work, they're like, oh, okay, I'm glad you had that backup plan. Yeah, of course. I guess that's what you, you're, that's why you're there though, isn't it? I guess you're a, a problem solver. You're a big problem solver for them. And also you're bringing your experience into the situation, which helps them realize a vision ultimately. You're realizing a vision together. Yeah, but also, you know, as you, as you progress through your career, I mean, for years and years and years, I was the youngest person on the team. And now all of a sudden I'm one of the oldest people on the team. So it's very interesting because, of course, when you work with, you know, new new directors and they also have their way of like, I want to try to do it this yeah. way. So you also have to say, okay, 
know, we're going to do it your way. But then I always have a plan B and a plan C, just in case. But you always have to be, you always have to, I don't think it ever helps um, to be so rigid, you know, even if you do know, even if you're like, I know this won't work. You have to kind of go, okay, we'll do it your way. But then... Back up, yeah. yeah flexibility and actually that segues quite nicely into how you got into um, becoming a costume designer well I actually started out designing sets um, for plays first um, which I also love to do and then um, then I went through NIDA which is our version of RADA uh, doing the design course and um, and then uh, I came out of NIDA and I did some small shows at the Sydney Theatre Company in Belvoir Street and some of them I did sets and costumes because, as theatre people know, often they don't have money for a set designer and a costume designer. Uh, so you do tend to, you tend to do both. Be all of it. Yeah. <laughs> and in some cases even you do the makeup and hair. Um, so, but then I... Um, when I did Romeo and Juliet, I think um, because it was an American production, it kind of, you know, cemented my future in a way because that's what people know you to do and so um, that's what they ask you to do. You know, and then you have children and then you grow up and then things get more complex. Um, and then you think, oh, I, should I go back to the very beginning and start being a production designer from the very beginning again? I think you have to be in... You have to be in a maybe your kids are out of the house and you're only you're only looking after yourself um, to go back then and start another career as a production designer and but you know I'm really interested in creative producing actually I like getting big groups of talented people from all over the world working together on particular projects and of course I love um, prep a lot on jobs where we um, get to work build things from nothing and um, because you can get all these people from all over the world and it wouldn't matter if it was a movie or you were designing a pair of shoes or a teapot or a whatever it was I guarantee you we could put together a team who could who could do that um, so I really I really love that part of it it's like prototyping of unusual things and technologies and so um you know on every job I get a chance to kind of even if we never end up using it on that job I often get a chance to kind of do R&D on on processes that I can then use later on yeah I can't remember what the question was now it was about how you started but actually you've um so now it's I'm I'm still doing the same thing as when I started but I'm just better at it now You've got the experience behind you. And actually, you mentioned very, I'm sure you get asked about this many, 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 many times, but you also designed all three of the Matrix films, the Wachowski, um, the director of the Wachowski's Matrix films. And I, I think my first question has to be, did you know it would go on to become the cult? Not that you had a magic ball there in front of you, but did you, was there any kind of idea that it would go on to become the cult kind of success that it has and sort of iconic films that they have become? Uh, no, I don't think anybody did. I think it was another one of those um, situations where I read the script like, I don't know, two years before I got asked to do the movie. Oh, wow. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a really good script, you know, And but are people going to go for it? You know, I, I wasn't sure. Um, 
And then, in fact, you know, the studio did kind of send us to Australia to kind of handle things on our own because I don't think they necessarily thought it would be, you know, they didn't really get it either. I thought, I think they felt like, oh, it's kind of esoteric and are people really going to understand that? And they, of course, being a kind of older generation, where, of course, now that we look back on it. It's very meta. It was our our generation and, and the people coming in behind, you know, quite closely behind us were yeah. that, were those people. So I think it was the right time. I think any sooner it may not have picked up and any later it would have been like, oh, yeah, we, we kind of know that yeah. or someone else would have done something similar. So um, I don't think anyone expected it at all. Um, and the very fact that I was hired as a, Australian designer who'd done one movie that anyone had ever seen I think and it was very cheap like very cheap Um, I think just you can see that they didn't they you know they weren't like basing any hopes on it so you know obviously it was a huge challenge it was different from very Romeo and Juliet's different from any theatre I'd done and so but you know luckily I was in Australia so I did have some of my very good collaborators who I still work with now who were just like, yeah, let's try it. Let's go for it. And I just think nobody was really watching over my shoulder and telling me no. And the, you know, Lana and Lily are very, they're not ones to say no, right? They're, they're like, allow you. They're like, let's see, let's try it. And so I think that was great because lot you know other people would have said oh would have been more reticent or wouldn't have wanted to take a risk or would have been afraid of the studio or and one thing you know that for good or for bad they're not afraid of the studio in a way I think we were largely left to our own devices in the same way that Baz and us were left to our own devices in in Mexico right um and so you had to work it out on your own and you didn't have we didn't have None of us had this huge movie experience where, you know, it's always done that way and this gets done first and then that gets done and then this person does that. Like, you know, we we just had to make it work, whether it was our particular job or our particular expertise. Someone had to do it so everyone had to step up, you know. So, like, designing sunglasses, I'd never done that. And the studio were like, well, why don't you just get Sunglass Hut or you know, someone to like sponsor it and they'll send you a bunch of sunglasses. And my feeling was, well, if they can create anything they want, then they create sunglasses that only fit on them, that only looked good on them, that only worked for the structure of their face. And in those days there were no 3D scanning to make a 3D model that you could design sunglasses on in a computer. So we had to plaster cast all the actors like old fashioned with straws up the noses and make plaster cast heads and send them to Richard Walker, who I was designing them with. And we made them on plaster cast faces to fit the actors' faces. It gave us like individualized design, which made it, made people feel they weren't going, oh, look at those Gucci sunglasses that they're trying to promo for that movie, right? (laughs) They were just like, oh, they're her glasses. They're Trinity's glasses. But, of course, it all depends. Like nowadays, even since then, time moves so much faster because you've got a phone and a computer and an Instagram and a this and a that. 
everyone can give you feedback in five minutes. Whereas in those days, I had a Motorola brick phone <laughs> um, and everything was fax, you know, it was kind of like everything got fax. Like you'd put an email in your computer and you'd fax it. Mm-hmm. It was different and it was slower and, ta- you know, and so I could get away with people didn't know everything you were doing. So I could be like, you know, I'm going to pay for Richard to fly to Australia with my own money and sit in my apartment and make sunglasses. Oh, wow. You know? The freedom. It gives you a freedom to design in a way, yeah. It definitely gave you like a bubble where a creative bubble, because nowadays also I think the studio system's slightly different and um, it's not to say like like Marvel and Warner Brothers and places that do do these big movies – they do want you to have um, freedom, artistic freedom, but time and money constraints are minute to minute, whereas then it was like month to month, right? So whatever you could pack into that month and then pay and present, um, in some ways it wasn't as micromanaged. And, and, and then again, that's the team you work with. Like, you know, there are certain producers and directors who aren't as worried about the micromanaging. And you're fortunate if you get those those people, you know, if you're on a particular type of job. So you just have to kind of like adapt and move forward. And and I think those particular particular experiences that I had with Romeo and Juliet and the Matrix movies made me a better designer because I was creatively insulated and allowed to create and have time to create. Because I often think now production you know costume designers and production designers are often um you know we have so much to do which isn't in the design part right we have you know there's the politics there's the budget there's the big picture there's the management time management and you know on shang chi i had 68 78 people in my department at any one time so time management and just consistently managing groups of people and and artistic individuals who are different to managing data entry people Um, and they're all different and I'm working in illustrators in you know Serbia and illustrators in London and illustrators in LA and you know so you're working in a global um, kind of time frame um, and each person has a different each artist has a different bent you know they're all good at something and they're all not good at something. Yeah. You know, so you have to cobble together a bunch of artists that can create you a, a unified whole. You'll never find one illustrator who can do everything. And you'll never find one cobbler or one seamstress or one uh, 3D modeler who can fulfill all the requirements. And so I think now a lot of my time is personnel and, and time management um, and quality control and the design component increasingly is being kind of, you know, shifted over to corporate concept art departments. So I think in that circumstance, which is my first experience of doing that, luckily I had a director and a producerial team and and the support of the Marvel people that they allowed me to take the concept art and, you know, not slavishly produce it if it didn't work in the practically in the context of what had to happen in the action and as the Shang Chi is a kung fu movie so constant new choreography and new stunts and new kung fu I had to kind of you know 
work out ways to preserve the integrity, but then also increase the design, um, I would say, flesh out the design area of it so that it, it could still, you know, look good, but also incorporate all of these other practical things, which the person who drew it a year or two ago had no idea of what was going to yeah. happen. So, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's, it, was a, it was an interesting process for me to go through because I've always been in control of all of the design of everything. Um, so I, I was conscious that when I took the job, I was like, okay, you're going to have to find a way to always be part of the solution and walk this tightrope where you, you know, preserve the brand um, but also give it something new and and very practical and which serves the story. But, you know, it was a kind of mind shift. I had to think, oh, okay, you know, because some of the things I would not have ever designed that way. Hmm. But, you know, and so the, I would say there's like 40% of the movie that I had to work like, like that in and the other 60% I could design how I wanted. But it was a definite uh, different process than if I was the designer like on 3000, which I'm on now, I designed every single thing in the costume world myself and so, or, you know, with my team. Uh, so it's just, you know, I think as the world of design changes and evolves, you have to embrace it and find out where your skills work still and where you have to develop new skills and, um, you know, and, and still be, and still be able to be, still be able to enjoy it and, you know, and want to go to work every day and enjoy it, which if I didn't, I think that would be the end of it for me. Um, and actually, I read in an interview that you um, did an article, sorry, that you, I mean, and actually, if you look at, even if you just look on your IMDb, you do a variety, you've worked on a variety of type of productions, say, be from superhero to fantastic fantasy to period to contemporary. And actually, you mentioned something there about, like, um adapting and evolving and I guess because you do and you also work in theatre you've worked on television um you worked on such a wide variety not getting pigeonholed into doing a particular type of um genre of film or production is that really important to you to have that variety yeah I'm I'm someone who's um I'm a Leo so ah yeah so yeah so well then as you know I'm sure you know when we're busy (laughs) We can be really busy and we can get a lot done and do a lot of different things at once. And then when we're not busy, which is why I scheduled this with you now, <laughs> um, I'm quite happy to do absolutely nothing. Like I could not do anything all day except read a book. <laughs> I could not even want to talk to someone at all, anyone, all day. So I can be incredibly lazy when I'm not busy, but I can be incredibly productive when I am. And so I often am working on a film or, a, or something, um, but at the same time I'm working on a, a Cirque du Soleil project, which, you know, those projects mm. are really long and, and, as you know, opera, they're really long, so they might take two or three years to come to fruition. So it's really good for me to have that other project in the mix, like the Slow Burn project, um, because I think it helps shift your brain and, and for me it relieves the anxiety of the actual job I'm working on. <laughs> to shift gears and go into the other the other story and the other characters and the other people I have to work with um it almost gives my brain like a rest and if I'm only on one thing I tend to get really hyper focused on it and um 
and it doesn't become as enjoyable. I, I almost need to have a split focus. And then I, as I switch between, it's like reading, you know, two really good books, you know, like you really want to switch around a little bit um, and then you can come back to the come back to the other project with kind of like a little bit more of an open, you know, enthusiasm um, for it. Because, you know, there's always something in every project that's problematic and that there's always something that, wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning every morning for like a month and I'm trying to work it out like how do I do it how do I and it's always different and it's never the thing you think and sometimes I think oh that character will be really hard you know I did a Cirque show which was a it was basically Avatar on on stage and we were designing you know all the working out how to make the acrobats into all the Avatar characters and all those characters have really long tails <laughs> I was like I, how am I gonna how are they going to do all these acrobats with these tails? And, and I was lying in bed every night thinking, oh, like, could I could do that? I could do that. Maybe I could do that. And then on the day, I was like, okay, I've got one idea. Let's try it. It worked straight away. Oh. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, but I was fully expecting it to be that was going to be the big problem. And for some reason, wasn't. <laughs> None of the acrobats got tied up in their tails. And um, um, the, the thing which became problematic was how to get iridescent spots uh-huh. on their uh-huh. makeup on stage to glow. And so, you know, that was the thing that took us a long time. So, you know, you never really know what the sticking point will be. Um, and sometimes, you know, some actors have a harder time getting into it than other actors some actors, you know, are very gung-ho and some actors like to be led slowly in. So I think, yeah, I think the not knowing is part of the not knowing. You get a, you get a script and you don't know how you're going to get there. It's kind of like this. It's like climbing a mountain, right, you, except every mountain's different. So you don't really know the pathway and that just gives you a different approach each time, which I yeah. think probably lights up other areas of your brain and so you you still find it interesting and exciting and terrifying and and when you get to the top you get that great sense of looking out over it down below and going oh okay that's what happened but as it's happening you're not really quite sure how you're going to get there or how you where you are in the process and uh, I think that's what a lot of us need you know a lot of us do it for yeah you get that um feedback almost don't you yeah, it's kind of like this achievement, you know, and of course it's a very privileged arena, right? Oh, definitely, I mean, yeah. If you're a brain surgeon, your path to the summit is way more precarious and has way more um, obstacles. Obstacles and then and and failure isn't an option, right? And if yeah. fa- and if you do fail, the the ramifications are immense, like psychologically and in every way. So I mean, I'm not pretending it's, you know, anything even a, like a person who achieves climbing Mount Everest. But I think the parts of your brain that want to move forward in that kind of upward quest for something um, is the same. Yeah, I think it's the human condition, isn't it? Wanting to be challenged and striving for something. I think that's... Uh... And then also, you know, the people you meet along the way, you know. There are people like yourself that I've met on little chance happenings, you know, that that keep threading in through the tapestry of, of, of the years and, and have, you know, the spider web spreads, you know. And that I really love. I love the fact that people, you keep coming across people that you worked with and 
they've all evolved and they're all doing their thing and and um, you see them again and you work with them again and you immediately have the same experience you had before but you're just better at it so you can go further and um, I think that that's also a huge thing in our industry like that family yeah yeah definitely yeah you're not alone saying that I think a lot of other uh, guests have said that um I'll ask you my last question then um did you get a chance to think of your three to watch recommendations and there's so many that's such a hard question (laughs) everyone says that it could be anything just saw that movie way forward with um Sophia Loren oh I was listening to an interview with her actually about it Eduardo Ponti's uh son her son I loved it I just loved it I thought I loved the fact it was a little contained story about the human condition and human relationships and apart from the fact I thought the performances by everyone especially the young boy in it it was just kind of salve you know for the soul in especially at the moment I really am looking forward to Wonder Woman (laughs) I think that will be amazing yeah I'm really looking forward to that um you know in Australia we can still go to the movies ah I'm looking and they often have like retrospective film festivals and they just had one with all of Keanu's movies which was uh fun for me I don't know maybe I'll have to te- email you I'll have to think about it I didn't really think about my all-time favorites there's just you know there's the great classics of course but um all the time situations will come up you know and um, I'll remember movies that I saw um, <laughs> Uh, when I was young and people I'm working with have absolutely no no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) I really should make a proper list. I do want to make a proper list for my kids who are like 19 and 20. Are they good Um, watching ages? They can watch everything then. Yeah, they can watch everything and I'll be getting a bunch of screeners, um, but I'm going to pepper them with old favourites. Ah, that would be nice. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you, Kim, for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kim. Tune into the next episode where I'll be speaking to music supervisor Abby Leland. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow, or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.